Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Julia LaRoche Show. Today, we're doing things a little differently, and we're going to explore the world of venture capital and public relations. Our guest today is Masha Buher. She is the founder and general partner of Day One Ventures, which is an early stage venture capital firm that specializes in public relations, communications, and storytelling. Some of the portfolio companies of Day One include WorldCoin, Truebill, and many others. In this episode, we explore the venture capital landscape today and get a pulse as to what is happening in that space. We get Masha's take on artificial intelligence and the boom there. And are we going to see a correction, especially in the generative AI space? We also get Masha's thoughts on valuations. And we do a deep dive into PR, how to do PR, what works and what doesn't, and much, much more. I really enjoyed this conversation with Masha, and I hope you do too. Masha Buher, founder and general partner at Day One Ventures. It is so great to see you, and it's great to welcome you on the show. Thank you so much for joining me today, Masha. Thank you, Gina, for having me on the show. I loved watching it for so long time, and it's such a pleasure and honor to be here with you. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate that. And I'm really excited to have you because I feel like we haven't had enough voices from the venture capital community. And we often talk a lot about, you know, macroeconomics and um, we're investing in public markets on this show. But VC is such a critical part of the economy. And so I was kind of hoping maybe we could set the table, if you will, and talk about the venture capital landscape today what is happening in the space? What are you most paying attention to? Um, and tie that into maybe more of the broader economy, if you will. I think um, venture capital is one of the best performing parts of private equity. And I'm speaking a lot with family offices that have over 50 LPs in the fund. And I think one of the things that lots of individuals, family offices, institutions are realizing that Venture capital is a, one of the best way to invest capital, but I think it's not just venture capital. It's about like which stage you invest in. And I think for the last over the last <clears throat> five ten years, early stage investing became very attractive, and I think um, amount of capital that flows into this field has increased. Uh, even if we look in the last twelve months, we saw that uh, basically we had a crisis for tech stocks. And lots of stocks of big companies has fallen, and some really known big companies that raised hundreds of million dollars in funding suddenly became worth, or even billion dollars in funding suddenly became worth than hundred million dollars, right? But I think uh, what happened is, on the one hand, decre decreased the interest of venture capital for late stage investing, but it didn't decrease interest of capital for early stage investing. And I think what we've seen on early stage, uh, we've seen that amount of uh, multi-stage players that's focusing right now on early stage investing has increased. So we see like bigger funds like Andreessen, General Catalyst, you name it, paying much more attention on pre-seed and seed rounds because the way they think about it, <clears throat> economy is not stable, but if team is strong, we can back their pre-seed round, we can back their seed round, they'll, we'll probably have enough capital to support this team if it's doing well until the market recovers. At the same time when uh, investing on pre-IPO stage, investing in growth stage has definitely decreased. We've seen much less Series B, Series C rounds than all previous years. But I do think that amount of capital on the stage where we play um, early stage hasn't decreased so much. And we do see a lot of new capital coming in as well. And of course, you could not speak about venture capital this year without um, giving attention to AI. I definitely been the most fast growing field and that still has 2021st year, 2021 valuations. It's still been the field where investors of all kinds see the most of opportunity. And um, I think there is like second sector, which is a little bit in the shadow of AI, but we do see more and more capital going into climate and energy space. I think if I look at like all kinds of fields that we invest in and we invest in variety of sectors from enterprise software to fintech to consumer, we see that there's two sectors, um, AI and climate are definitely champions. 
Got it. Um, I do want to hear more on the AI space. Um, just how are you thinking about it today? Um, there have been there have been headlines or just questions like, is it is there an AI bubble that's brewing or there are spaces within AI? How, how do you evaluate? Just I want to hear maybe more big picture how you're thinking about AI and then we can zoom in on like how you sure. evaluate and where you want to be within the AI space. Well, I started my career in 2010 and that was the first time I joined venture capital firm. And since 2016, I've been investing independently and 2016, 17 before starting Dave and Ventures, I had angel portfolio and my very first investment in 2016 was investment in AI companies. So I can say that I've been in this field for quite some time. And by the time that the AI boom has started, we already had 35 AI companies in our portfolio. And I was saying in the beginning of the year, I think basically, and probably by the end of the year, we will have 70 companies in our portfolio that focus on AI, but even if we don't invest in anything new, and what it means, it means that there are like a lot of companies that existed before this AI boom that has very strong customer base, and that's optimizing the existing business model by integrating AI in their core business components. We have consumer company in mental health space that embedded AI in their product. They have 22 people right now. They only need nine people on board because they started using ChatGPT, so the cost of their um, services that they're providing has decreased and especially they decreased spend on marketing and sales. And we see company do not pay that started using, that's always been using AI, but started using ChatGPT as one of their core foundational layers. And you could see that um, this company been scaling and started scaling and growing really fast, over break even and doing great. We have company Superhuman, which is a company creating the best and fastest email experience. And they definitely leverage ChatGPT right now with their help. You can have AI drafting emails for any of their customers. And they've definitely grown and um, benefited from making AI one of the core parts of the infrastructure. So when I think about the AI boom, I'm not only thinking about a bunch of generative AI companies that appeared right after ChatGPT was launched. I'm also thinking about Companies that existed years before that started using AI as a core product. And I think with full confidence, we can call some AI companies. And I think these companies that existed before and started using AI, they have actually better chances to succeed because one thing that they have compared to all completely new startups in the space, they actually have a strong customer base. And I think while I think it's really important to use the best and newest technology as a core of your product, you, um, I think the biggest thing that needs for company to be successful is understanding of the customers. And I think that's what this company has accomplished. And answering your question, if there is an AI bubble, I think right now it's been an explosion of generative AI companies. I'm much more interested in the first application of AI. I'm interested in combining AI and robotics. I think lots of the jobs, um, routine jobs, monotonous jobs, happening in offline world, both in production and then plants and factories, but also like in your home, in your kitchen, in your house. I think lots of this job is going to be automated by robots. And I think lots of these robots are going to be having AI embedded in them. And it could definitely optimize how people spend time in general and how they approach all kinds of works. I think this is a big field. I don't think this revolution has started yet, but I think we definitely ready for this and i think maybe slightly further i'm very interested and i'm very excited about what i can do for biotech and for life science i think it can bring a completely different approach to uh, the way how we see creating like new elements how we see healthcare how we see future of human and um what do we create on more fundamental level and i think one of the biggest huge explosions that will come with AI revolution would not be generative AI, it would be combining AI and biotech and in the same spectrum, like some climate problems that we couldn't solve before right now, some of that been solved with the help of AI and by using AI. So I think AI will become part of like multiple fields, but I think probably like this fields I just mentioned as the one I'm excited about the most. And I do think it's going to be correction when it comes to 
prices for AI companies in the next few months, but I don't think it will touch all kinds of companies. I think it will touch generative AI companies. I think more and more investors, as they're making new bets in AI, is asking questions. Why foundational models like OpenAI, like Hugging Face, cannot do it better? And they have to understand this answer. I think at the same time, some new startups that has created some new technology based on ChatGPT or similar solutions started assembling customer base, then they suddenly realized that having excellent technology is not enough and not all customers onboarding immediately. And it takes time to convert pilots into proper contracts. So I do think combination of these factors going to be leading to correction in some of generative AI companies. But I'm quite excited and bullish on technology overall. And I think it's we're also like year or two or three from the moment when we stop saying like AI company, you know, as we start yeah. like stop saying it's like mobile app company right now, every company has mobile app. I think it would become like more generic name and it wouldn't be existing as a separate field. It would be just like underlying platform, underlying tech. So we stop saying like AI company, like we're doing it right now and we did it before. Yeah, that is fascinating. Um, I want to ask a follow on to it, especially as it relates to generative AI. And you're just talking about like the AI companies um, that you've backed and the importance of having that customer base. Um, and I want I do want to hear more on it because there was a memo that came out um, in it, I believe it was written by someone at Google, but it went pretty viral. And it was this notion of we yeah. have no mo, we have no mo, and neither does OpenAI. So, from your vantage point, what would give an AI company a moat? Or, I mean, I guess in the absence of a moat, what are the things that they need? It sounds like a strong customer base is one. What else do you think? When I called um, our fund when I started it over five years ago, Dave and Ventures. I met Jeff Benz at that time and we spoke and he very much inspired me with his vision about Day One Company. And if you remember this letter to shareholders he wrote into uh, 1999, it was like uh, Day One Company and few criteria, what needs to be Day One Company, it was one criteria, obsession with customers. And we took this criteria as a very important investment criteria. Well, to, uh, and I think this is something that you either have in your DNA or not. And I think it's something that is really important to not forget in the age of AI. I do think it's really important if companies come from deep understanding of customer needs. I think there is right now always tensional technology where, which help us to sell and to market. And I do think it's still not enough technologies that help us to listen to our customers, to understand them better, to summarize their feedback to process this feedback into meaningful product decisions and to enable this feedback loop between listening to your customers and making it a part of your future plan. I think doing it right now, all of that just been done by like really great product leaders that just genuinely empathetic. And on the same time, that's like what's necessarily to create a product that reaches product market seat. But I think consumers are changing much faster. So you have to iterate on product much faster. And I think lots of that been preventing lots of like people, it's just been too difficult. And one of the hopes I have that with the help of AI, more companies would be able to use much more technologies that help you to listen, to analyze, to understand your customers better and to get into your future product decisions. And I'm quite excited about like technology helping us with this part as well as I think lots of leaders who couldn't realize their visions before that, or who couldn't iterate fast enough on the product before that, would be able to start doing it right now with the help of AI. Yeah, obsession with customers, so important. Also on the AI front, mentioning um, that you see the possibility or likelihood of a correction, at least in the generative AI space. I wanna zoom out a bit and I want to hear your thoughts um, in venture capital, especially the big multi-stage VCs and valuations, um, especially on the seed stage level. Um, I guess if you had to think about the ecosystem, what is kind of your thought process or how are you thinking about valuations today? 
Well, um, I think it's very interesting because it's almost like two dimensions. You have to think about general valuations. And there is a data, <clears throat> I think I've seen this report from Carter, literally like two days ago, there is a data that's saying that average series pre-seed is five minute valuation, average seed between 15 and 20, average series A is 40, series B 85. But that comes like, well, like over 100, right? But that's what comes to normal companies, right? Whenever companies AI, we've seen this year, seed companies, AI companies with great, amazing, driven founders that were raising capital on over 70 million cap, on over 80 million cap, over 100 million cap. I've seen ser Series C that, I've seen Series A companies raising big rounds. Some of that already announced that they close around and 1.2 billion valuation. So I think evolution, uh, valuations in AI has gone like very far. However, I do think <clears throat> in any in venture capital, we've seen it like with VR, we've seen it with crypto. I think venture capital is like a very still like very tight community that kind of like read the same news that's like all sits on Twitter. And it's like very close and it influences each other a lot, but at the same time, I think many venture capital firms have done their major bet over the last um, few months. And I can't see this community keep doing bets um, on more and more AI companies kind of like doing similar thing. I think there is like second thing that we're facing lots of generative. I think generative AI companies are the ones that have tendency to pivot almost like all the time. And you end up being, you invest in generative AI company, but it's really hard to guarantee that the new investment you do and not going to be competing with your previous one. I feel like the risk of being inside like two competitors is much higher than in any other fields because companies it's rating very fast. They don't have to have lots of engineers to do this. And I think at some point VCs will understand, okay, this company is just coming. I actually have something slightly competitive. So I do think the appetite for new investments on early stage or later stage will start decreasing. Wow. That's, so that's fascinating. Um, this notion that there's a risk that you could be with two competitors. Have you ever had to deal with that? Um, and how do you deal with that? Or if you haven't, um, have you talked to folks who have had to deal with that within a portfolio? I think um, we tried to, we made like majority of our bets really early and we really tried to avoid the situation. And it's very tough sometimes because sometimes you invest in a company and you have new companies that just like coming to you. And I think I just learned over the course of career to, if I have like a 1% of doubt that I'm going to be, I'm going to end up being an investor into competitive, I would rather avoid the situation. I think whenever it happens, you're just trying to preserve information as much as possible. One, and I think two, even though there are lots of venture capitalists, which like I worked for like cyber protection company and the lead investor invested in their competitor and was on the board of both. I think this is like outside of my comfort zone. So I think whenever something like that happens, I just have to kind of like make conscious choice, which of these two companies I'm closer with doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be end up winner. And I just pulled back from another one because I don't think being very connected with both of them will be fair or will be honest, but I just try to not be in this situation. And it's also part of the reason I think we've done, <clears throat> we've done a lot of AI investments before this year, but this year it was like maybe like three new investments or two. And lots of that for the same reason. Um, and lots of time we didn't invest just because we're actually afraid that it's going to be competing with something that we already have in the portfolio. Tell me about this year. Um, okay, so we're, we're September now. So in the last nine months or this year alone, um, how many investments have you made or new investments? Tell me about like the activity that you're seeing. So we roughly make, um, we roughly make um, maybe like one investment a month, one investment every two months. We have deal flow over 1,000 companies coming to us every month. Some of them just come and bound. And lots of that is called emails and we don't know these people, but lots of that comes through our 
founders and 80% of our current fund introductions that made through, made by our own founders. So we're very proud that entrepreneurs are put back, happy to work with us and refer us to each other. I think the rough pace was like one company every month, one company every two months. It's, uh, I think it's maybe like, maybe like six investments were made this year. So we didn't speed up, but we also didn't slow down. We do also make sure that we have enough reserves and we're proud to say this year we preempted, I believe six new checks, six new investments. So we gave term sheets to companies that started showing some traction. And we wanted to maximize their chances quickly and successfully raise Series A. So we've done uh, term sheets to these companies and we have like five of these companies already raised and one company we just gained term sheets with them probably like less than a week ago. So I hope it's going to be successful. But I think it's like one of the things that you can do as early investor, even if you run not like gigantic multi-stage funds, you could still preempt new rounds with something as small as one, two, three million dollar check and can speed up the process and can show market your conviction about this particular team. So, Masha, I heard you say, this is interesting, um, you had about a thousand, um, I guess these are incoming pitches to get an investment a month. As I, I frankly, I don't, I haven't done much in the VC space in terms of interviews, but it's so fascinating to me um, as a venture capitalist. Okay. Um, that sounds like a lot. How do you how do you even begin to sift through and figure out who you might want to have a conversation with? How do you vet a thousand coming through each month? I think one is like knowing what you look for and we generally fun, but at the same time, we focused on few areas and in addition to AI and climate that I already mentioned, we've quite invested in enterprise software, we've invested in future of work creator economy and consumer and fintech. And we consciously chose it after for like four years, five years running the fund when the stood where we have the best track records, the best connections, where we've been the most helpful and where we live, we believe that market's gonna go, uh, gonna keep growing, right? So I think one is just like knowing very well um, what sectors you invest, what sectors you don't invest. For example, we don't invest like in gambling or we don't really like there's like a lot of a huge amount of new marketing technologies that help you to sell more, that help you to market better. And I personally am not interested in helping people to consume more. I think we already consume much more than we need, at least in developed countries. And I just not interested to support any technology and help us like consumer to acquire more, right? We've been investing in DTC companies for many years and I have a huge admiration to DTC brands that, that then we've seen that the growth of these businesses is like much slower and the further you go, the harder to raise big capital and your multiples on your revenues. The revenues are the best compared to other companies, but your multiples are the lowest. So we started like letting go some of the sectors that we loved before and that we liked before, right? And then like we want to make sure like we invest in precedence as a cross check. So we have to push back and even if it's amazing, Series A, Series B opportunity, we're just like, no, like, we're not going to do it because it's something like that's aligned with our company strategy. And it's also about like how you filtering first opportunities. And I think the signals that we react on, I think the highest signal anyone can get is like when our founder make introduction, I think the second highest signal, it's when, um, it's when, uh, a venture capitalist that we know that we co-invested with that we respect or angel making introductions. I think third signal is, uh, as you know, we invest in companies and spearhead their communication. So we have media as our like long-term partners that we love and respect. So we do have close circles reporters that from time to time point our attention on certain companies. I also, um, we have like, um, so basically it's just like, trying to find out how to filter signal. And one thing I learned all of this time is I try to probably out of thousand companies, we take hundred first calls and we take maybe like 20 second calls. So we try to be respectful to founders time and try to only pursue and pay attention on very small amounts of opportunities. And only in the moment when like we're fully in, we're fully captivated, 
we're going to diligence, right? If we have like single thought of doubt, we try to just let it go and just focus on the one few opportunities that we absolutely excited about. And that's a good signal for us to do diligence. I think you think that we started doing much more. We do a lot of um, background check. We do really care about how community speaks. We try to make it as um, clear and data-driven as possible and to make, for example, when you do reference check, if you see a new founder and you just check with one or two persons, it would be totally biased, right? So you try to go like, you try to find like five, seven, ten people who you have in mutuals and find out what community thinks of them. And I think it's much more accurate. And um, but I think overall, it's like just also asking like some simple question: Would I ever imagine myself working for this founder? Do I believe that this is actually big market because there are lots of amazing businesses that's been created? But if you look at the market, you understand it's never going to be like 10 plus billion dollar company. And right now with the point when we had, I personally backed eight unicorns on early stages and we have companies like remote.com, which over 33 billion in value. We have Worldcoin, which become really big in a short amount of time. So it does really shapes your taste about what kind of companies you want to work with. And I think having like working with companies with a big vision and big mission and something that can potentially change the world is something that is like this line that's also like helping us to filter out lots of opportunities. And again, lots of companies which are doing great business, helping customers, like not all of them are going to be changing the world that we find just like focusing on small amounts. And sometimes like I can like look at like five companies a day, seven companies a day and not make a single investment and like, I don't know, four, five, sometimes six months. And I learned to be, to stay in a comfort zone and not just like make investments out of desperation just because I haven't done deal some time ago. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's interesting to me about you, um, you come from a PR background. And at the top of the conversation, we mentioned not only investing in early stage, but doing that communications strategy. Can you talk about that? Because that that to me is such a fascinating like value add to bring to the space. And when did you have this unlock that you wanted to get into venture capital? What was the story there? I think um, it's quite interesting because I had my social media agency when I was teenagers that became like really big, 70, 80 people, dozens of clients. And then I met this amazing entrepreneur, Serge Bell, who founded a few multi-billion companies. And I was ready to, like, I worked for him for five years. And actually, my I first started working for his fund, Runa Capital. And he kind of, like, came up. He said, okay, you had to be a show. And you worked with social media. You should do PR. And I believe that I can do PR. So it's, like, hard to say if I appeared first in venture capital or I started doing PR first. But I think I realized that PR and being able to fall in love as a company and with a story and tell it to the world just because you're so passionate about it. So you cannot hold it. So you have to share it further. And I was like also lucky to work with so many successful founders in my career before starting day one. I probably worked with like over 30, 30 founders of different unicorns. So I was really excited about it. But then I had PR studio before day one. I was understanding that there is a lot of misalignment in the structure. And it was misalignment because like as it you grow a PR business, you want to have clients on the retainer. But most interesting, early stage companies that just don't have a news every week. So lots of this money they should be paying you for retainers, like for a very little job. But at the same time, sometimes like you choose this like quite boring, like late stage B2B company with a bigger PR budget instead of choosing this company that hasn't even raised their seed round, right? Just because they can afford them. It was more and more and more misalignment when I found myself in a situation when my business was thriving financially. But at the same time, I wasn't representing companies I'm in love with. I wasn't always honest with my friends or reporters because I was representing simply companies that could afford my services, right? Because it was a lot of demand. And it was like many other misalignment. And at the same time, I saw that one third of companies that I selected as clients became unicorns and that was like 2016, 17. And I realized, well, 
I've been doing much more than just PR, but helping a strategy. I've been introducing to investors to early cars. So it felt like it was much more energy that I had to give, but that would like, you wouldn't monetize. And then I looked back and I realized, well, if I took more risk, it's much more risk to do PR free of charge. It's much more risk to raise money from multiple investors and do go to provide the services for free instead of we had like in three years, eight figures revenue business. So it was like much more state, like stable, much more faster return, right? I realized, well, I want to take this risk in order to have better integrity and better alignment with entrepreneurs I'm working with. And I think it's also structure and strategy when you invest in company and you support them with your services long-term and you only depend on this like very final outcome. You immediately get in the same boat with the founders. So it does create much better foundation for long-term relationship. It creates much better foundation for long-term partnerships. And I'm a big believer in long-term gains. I'm a big believer into like compounding effect of working with people that also play long-term games. So it just like felt much better. And it felt like much more aligned. And um, I worked like all previous careers, I think in the past, I had like a few jobs and the longest I was on like one job was one team of like five years. And right now, like day one is like five and a half to almost six. And it's just still feels like day one. And I still feel incredibly excited. And I still have like list of hundred things I want to improve and plenty of ideas and plenty of energy a lot of knowledge but at the same time feeling like humbled every next time i'm meeting new founder and just understanding how much better our team has to become in order to serve this amazing founder even in a year because this founder moves so fast you know so it's really interesting and it does really help to stay on top with the best technology and with the best people yeah one of the things that struck to me it's it's getting that incentive alignment right. And I am curious um, for your thoughts on just like PR in general and like PR agencies, because I've had folks say to me like, oh, I need to get a PR agency so I can get publicity or whatnot. But, you know, it sounds like you have to get one, the incentives right. And two, I think a lot of times, and this is just my view and I want to hear your view, it's a lot of money to get an agency. And if you if they have bigger clients who can afford their services, I wonder if they get prioritized over those early stage. Like, when is it appropriate, in your view, to get an agency? Or what are some of the things that people should know um, about PR that they might not know, thinking that maybe that's the, the cures that they get an agency to do the PR for them? Well, I think it's a all great questions and you have the right observation. I do think that for a company up until Series B, PR agency wouldn't be that helpful because the best PR agency wants to have great team. And in order to have great team and it's extremely competitive market for the talent, you need to be able to afford to pay them well, right? In order to be able to afford to pay them well, you need to have stable client base. So you take clients that can pay good fee and good fee is like over $30,000 a month at very least. And you need to be able to afford them for retainer. But if you pre-seed or seed companies or series A, you cannot pitch reporters every day. You have to have like a news, you have to have like some data and you cannot produce, they're like so small, you cannot produce data every single week or every single month. You have to focus on maybe like two, three, maybe four big announcements over the year. You have to take like a month, you have to prepare and make a big splash, right? And that's how you consistently generate attention. But if you in early stage, there is simply not enough work for the sophisticated PR agency team. And on the same time, if you work like with media, we do see that top biggest media outlets drive you so much more attention. Like we see today showed led to 70% of revenue growth in today's new round of funding. We like stories like that, but it's driven by top tier media. And sometimes, like from time to time, you can find a great industry media, smaller ones that can also help you a lot, but it's not like plenty of them. So basically, you hire the sophisticated team, but their resources either used to get some meaningless links or they just like try and keep knocking the door of big outlets, which just like need like very hard news. And they can like Wall Street Journal, I'm not going to write about your series seed company like five times a year. 
it's just impossible. So it's just like base of resources. In general, I think for any company, there is like absolutely best solution to have PR team in-house. And while I don't think agencies is a good source, like it's like, like good for early stage companies as a service provider, I do, do think you can tap into agencies talent and find like really great talent, a lot of top PR agencies, right? And people who just like focus on your brand. But I think the very best structure for any like technology Silicon Valley companies like work like take money from day one on pre seed seed, then work like pre seed seed series A. And when it's series B, when you over 100 people, when you already have raised at least like $100 million in funding, you're already in position to recruit agency. And I also highly recommend to recruit agency at the time when your company you already have at least one person in house because if you don't have and I don't mean CMO, I mean like PR person in house, right? Because it should be someone who provide data, who jump like all these balls internally and know where to get data, know who to talk to in order to support this PR team. And then it would make sense. So I do think it's good, but I think it's like series B, series C, maybe series C, series D. And we have examples in our portfolio, like two bills that got acquired. We started working with them super early since they got acquired for 1.3 billion in 2021. We kept serving them up until acquisition. So it just like also depends on how frequent you have, how often, how many news you have, what is like the volume. Um, and in terms of like how media landscape is changing, if it's interesting to touch base on, I think it we're totally like moving through lots of shifts. There are like lots of voices online that tells like big media evils I should disappear. I don't think they're going to disappear, but I think it's getting like much more decentralized. I think there is like big known legacy media. I don't think they're going to go away. I do think their influence is slightly decreasing, but they're not disappearing. And I think getting publication in New York Times, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, Tech Times is always going to be great. And it does drive you traffic, it does drive you attention, it's the status thing. I do think the influence of big media is slightly declining, but it's not disappearing. I think second is like, there are like lots of high quality industry media, and some of them just like specialize on particular fields, they're more niche, but very known in the industry. Some of them multi uh, area, and I think the information is an amazing example that smaller media has created a great brand that has unique reporting and take some of the best most talented reporters on the market that's like second and i think like third the area that's definitely grown the most is this content and like something that you do i think there are a huge amount of amazing podcasts like yours or nanny rachinsky podcast or harry stabbings you know like lots of amazing sub steps like newcomers that's and i think this area gonna kept exploding and i think it will lead to the point when content will be much more specialized I think I love the project called Torpentine from Eric Thornberg, Thornberg. And this project is amazing because it allows professionals in different fields has their own specialized podcast. And the goal of the podcast, not like a scoop on a story, the goal for this podcast to help professionals get better at their jobs. I think this is like exciting field. I think this field only going to grow. I think, um, I don't know, we were speaking like three years ago, there's like too many podcasts, right? And then we have like something like Huberman, like the, it's like gets like super big, right? And we have like new up and coming podcasts like yours. So I think it will keep continuing. I think signification and decentralization of this media only going to be increasing. And I think fourth, if in the past, even like five, 10 years ago, you, you could be like leading tech company and you don't have to have Twitter, you don't have to have LinkedIn. I think it gets harder and harder. I think you need to be able to build on public. I need, I think you need to be able to articulate your thoughts. I think it's very important to get customers. I think it's even more important to raise capital for no matter what you do. And it's incredibly important to share some content and speak almost like on daily, not maybe weekly, but like regular basis. If you want to have this community that support you when you need capital and other resources. And I think it's really sensitive and super important if you want to hire great talent, because that's how talent get to know you. And that's how people know who they want to work for. 
And I think maybe like we kind of like getting over the bridge when maybe like in five years, like I don't know if you could like run a company if you don't have social media presence, you can like it, you can dislike it. I think there is only way of doing it right, just like doing it yourself. <laughs> and I think it's already been proven so many times and you just have to learn as a leader how to do it on the ways that you enjoy it. How to do it on the ways that it's like a natural part of your life. And it's not another thing that works at stress. I totally agree, though, on the build in public part. And Masha, I heard you mention Truebill, and I know that was um, one of your exits. Maybe it'll be helpful for the folks um, watching, listening, because since 2018, like you've had some serious exits, um, some unicorns. Can you kind of frame up the portfolio um, and share a bit about it, um, if you don't mind? Sure. Yeah, we are, so we started Pyramid in 2018, and right now we have six unicorns, including one public company, Theron Orbital, and we had also 18 exits, some of them ended up being fund returners, and I think there is like one company in portfolio and you find that's very exciting, um, compared to second company I name, it's on the conservative side, it's called remote.com, it's grew to 3 billion in value. In just three years, it's also have hundreds of million dollars in revenue in such a short notice. I'm also fascinated that this company um, is ran as a remote 1,000 people remote team, which I think is crazy. You have to be really excellent manager to build such a great team with amazing culture. They're doing global payroll, so every company can hire people in other countries by using remote and you pay a subscription fee. You don't have to deal with local regulations. You don't, and all IP goes to you. You can, it's quite affordable and it's also like very predictable service. They integrated with Gasto and they integrated with Coinbase. And it's a great company. It's grown really well. We're very excited. The second company that many people heard of, it's called WorldCoin and it's a new identity and financial network. It has a lot of talks about this company. And it has a lot of attention. We also generated on paper quite significant return. Now, first check, incredibly exciting. This company is wants to create um, created new profile of personhood with the help of the SORP that verifies that you're a unique human being with the help of biometrics. And I think right now we're all facing this problem that this explosion of AI, we just worried that it sort of would not be possible to understand and think that if it's a human being or if it's AI. And I do think this field is really increasing, but it's the only companies that provide ability to do it in the centralized privacy preserving way. For example, I saw recently that right now you can use your clear account to get verified on LinkedIn. And uh, it's quite interesting, right? Because clear, this company you see in the airports, and now you get verified on LinkedIn was clear. But I think the fact that Altcoin can verify you without um jeopardizing your privacy is incredibly important and i think i think this company will change the world and all the same time they also want to redistribute this wealth that's coming with this ai boom and they want to give um um they want to give a share of that talking to every human planet in the world just because um they entitled to the share of their world coin and that could be also a way to redistribute profits from the ai revolutions that's mostly right now only hitting like techniques and I think it's a way to share the value with the rest of the world. So this company is incredibly important and I'm very excited about company U.com which is AI powered search engine started by former chief scientist of Salesforce Richard Sarcher. I think they changed the way how people search. I think this company ran by amazing founder. I think they have completely new approach and I think it's very customer empathetic companies that's very quickly iterate on products and definitely ahead of the curve and we see their competitors copying their features but i do think always like whomever is inventor whomever is innovator and doing things first is going to succeed so it's like three examples of companies as you see one is ai plus consumer and another is like classic enterprise software and fintech and another one is like something between uh crypto and finance, but all of them very excited and just working with this company has shaped my world so much, not only as an investor, just like a human being. And it's also a big uh, 
challenge for me to just like keep being up to date with technology and with all other things just to be able to keep bringing value to companies like that no matter how quickly they develop but it does also shape taste for what kind of companies we look for and i think like even working with the three companies it does really make me look for more companies that's mission driven because you never get tired working with companies like that in a year and two or five i think another thing that's um um taught me working with this companies i think one of the biggest things for success is like focus and i think being able to work with very fast very focused founders um is like something that is also like shaping my taste about what kind of founding teams and what kind of entrepreneurs um are the best to partner with and i want to keep partnering in the future yeah wow I'm biased because I also I work for you.com for the folks who are watching and listening and definitely go check it out. Y-O-U.com. Um, it is an incredible new search engine and founded by an incredible person, um, Dr. Richard Socher, as you mentioned. Um, you know, what else what else was interesting to me, Masha, was a lot of these deals are super competitive. And from what I understand, you have some compelling stories for how you met some of these founders, including through social media. Could you give us a peek into how that played out, how that worked? I think I'm always intuitive and I think I just like, there's like one advantage I have. I'm trusting my intuition and I met my very first time I entered in tech because I met this fantastic, super successful founder, Serge Ballon, Vito. And that's kind of like predefined how I keep meeting people. And even like this use of like true bills that you mentioned, it was very big asset for our firm. I saw them on product hand, so just reached out and uh, company, um, company remote.com I met through the head of growth who was previously one of our founders who I met on LinkedIn just because I read his story and didn't hesitate to reach out. I met. Sam Altman's co-founder, Alex Blaney, he messaged me on Instagram and he hasn't been in the United States before and we connected, had a great call and I invited him to visit San Francisco and introduced to my friends and helped to get integrated in this amazing community and networks that's led to him like meeting Sam, partnering with him on WorldCoin and building this like multi-billion business like and basically transitioning from 24 years old student of Max Planting to founder of like one of the most exciting multi-billion dollar companies and one of the more forward creating one of the most forward thinking technologies that exist in Silicon Valley right now all in like three years that was like crazy story I think it's just like being like very intuitive and just open non-biased and um, I just follow this intuition impulse I think it's also important and like you work you have to be not overly swamped because if you sit on Zoom 15 hours a day and you don't have this time and you can call it procrastination but you have to give yourself a bit of rest to think something's just like come coming up to you i don't think you should be very harsh with yourself if you just like spend time on social media and just don't do anything like important i think it's as an investor like it's all needed but i always like one of my LPs told me like few years working together Oh, Marshall, like you work with people you like. Like I learned it from you now. I'm also trying. And I didn't even understand immediately what he meant. And I think it's just been always a factor for me. I never work with people like I dislike. I don't work with people who I don't think is a good person with good values. And at the end of the day, it ended up being almost advantage. But at the same time, when you work with people you like and you're genuine about, I think it makes you do much better work and it makes you much better partner for them. And um, so I think that's also been like a very simple thing that actually became like one of the biggest factors in my career and one of the most important things and just like parts of the culture for entire day one team. Yeah. You know, um, you were in your 20s when you started day one and I would love to hear if you could go back or during that time, is there something you wish you knew or if you had to you know, give advice to that next generation, like up and coming um, VC or the person who wants to start a VC fund, what would you say? What would be that one thing you would say? So I think one thing is just like, there is like one thing I would say is 
don't like listen to anyone. I think your intuitive impulse that you have is really important and just like hear to your voice in your head. And there's some like very famous GP tells you, oh, bag this company or like you want to back someone because they have a great network. Just don't do it. I think you should back company only if it's a good investment and you not only like think about it, but you actually like feel it. You could not like stop thinking about this company. All best investments I've done and some of them like two, two years to get from like first conversation to wiring check. You have to be overly excited. And if you have like a single sort of doubt, just like let it go. And don't think that anyone knows better than you, despite that some people could have 20 more years of experience. I think it's like really important because at the end of the day, you can be only responsible for your own decisions and just like start developing it from the very beginning. And then one of like inspiring people I met early when I was just like starting, before I was starting the firm, Jeremy Levin from Bessemer, who was on like on the board of Yelp and on the board of LinkedIn and Shopify, he said like, oh, like this is all about patience, right? And it is, it is about patience and you raise capital when you wait for companies to evolve. It takes a few years before you see first actual returns from investments you make. It's incredibly, it's incredibly long feedback loop. And this is like a bit harsh advice. It's already minor Jarvis, but if you're not going to spend in this year, at least 10 years, it just doesn't even matter to try. You don't, you don't have to even enter because you're not going to learn how it works until you're first like unicorns until your first company go public your failures it's an incredibly long feedback loop and your first successes it was exciting to have like fund return and to exit like in full fund return in like three years but it's like such a beginning of the journey and i think it's just like better to not try going to see if you're not gonna potentially like commit to to at least a decade better longer Right, because it's just not gonna get like all the fruits. You, if you want to jump and like off like in three years and five years before seeing the fruits, it's exciting, but it's just not gonna be worth it because I think that's most rewarding part. It's like comes years from that. Well, I have to say, Masha, I've learned a lot from you in this um, very short hour, and I appreciate you so much being so generous with your time and your ideas, Masha Buhar founder and general partner of Day One Ventures. Thank you so much. Really great seeing you and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you, Juna. It was very exciting. And I can't believe we haven't met in person yet. It feels like we I know each other like for a while. <laughs> I know, I'm Thank sure we will.